Okay, so Philippians 4, um, this is our final, uh, I'm sorry, this is not our final. <laughs> I had that in my notes. I meant to scratch that out and put, this is almost the final, yeah, <laughs> this is what happens. You start the week and say, this is the final, and then by the end of the week, you're like, this is too much to be the final the one. So we are going to make, cover a lot of ground, but we're going to have to extend this. There's too, too many things. So this is number 10 in the series. Uh, entitled Overcoming Sinful Fear and Anxiety. We know anxiety is an issue because there's an app for it, right? Right. That's how we know, right? It's not because we are uh, sinfully concerned or, or dealing with anxiety, you know, for a large part of our lives. It's because now in prime time, I noticed it just this weekend, there's now an app, I mean, you know, high dollar advertisement prime time for the Calm app. Y'all seen this? So this is an app you... I assume it's free. Well, they always say it's free. That's if you want the low end, right? If you want the real perks to the app, then you have to pay two ninety nine or something. So, but it's an app basically designed to keep you thinking positive thoughts. To keep you, it has it has music. You know, it plays sort of calming music. Kind of tracks. I think you know what's going on and just kind of helps you to redirect your attention. So that's why we know this is a problem, right? It's not because we deal with it. It's because if they're going to pay a lot of money to advertise an app like that, then it must be a common, common thing. So the relaxed channel, they got, they got all kinds of things, right? So um, we have covered up to this point uh, a, a, a number of sort of, we call sort of overarching principles. Uh, we spent some time looking specifically at fear. Um, and then last Sunday, we turned from fear to worry and began to unpack, unpack exactly what worry uh, and, and anxiety is. Uh, we said that worry in the New Testament is a form of uh, that word, at least, that word to worry or to be anxious in the New Testament is the form of a Greek word that, that can be translated both as care uh, or concern, or it can be translated as worry or anxiety. So, it basically means, the word means to divide the mind um, or to divide the attention or to be distracted, to distract the thoughts. And like fear, we said that it's not always a sinful thing. Um, again, is it just simple concern is it, or is it sinful anxiety? Well, that has to do with the context of the passage we're looking at and then how the term is, is being used in that context. So just to review, we said about worry that worry is not diligent care. It's not concern that causes you and I to attend to life in a responsible way. Uh, to, to demonstrate that, we looked at a number of passages that emphasize the fact that, that we ought to be concerned and we ought to care uh, about a lot of things. Uh, we saw examples of this, about being concerned for the church. We ought to be concerned about church, we ought to be concerned about and for the spiritual well-being of others. Uh, We ought to care about the daily needs of life. Uh, We ought to care if we're married about our spouses and their desires and what pleases them. We ought to be concerned about uh, the the state of our families. In fact, we said that we we ought to be concerned about those things and if we're not concerned about those things, we ought to be concerned about that. Right? So, if we're not concerned about certain things, then we should be concerned about the fact that we're not concerned. You got it? So, some things we just... Because this isn't like, well, who, well Jesus said we shouldn't be anxious, so we're not going to think about food. Well, let's say don't think about food. I mean, 
You have to think about that. You have to think about that so much. The first Thessalonians said that if you're if you don't work, you don't eat, right? Do you have to think about work? You have to think about work. You have to think about what the purpose of work is, and then what's going to result from that. But that's different than simple anxiety. And so there are things we should be concerned about. Um, and if we're not concerned about some things, which there are people that do that, they just sort of put their hands up and say, well, the Lord's in control, right? Yeah, I don't need to concern myself with that. That's irresponsible. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's sinful to do that. So uh, we are to be concerned about certain things in life, but we're not to be and never be anxious about them or to, to worry about them. So worry is not, it's not compassion, concern. That's a battery thing. It's, it looks like it's going out when I turn it on. So, um, so worry is, is not impassioned care or holy concern that causes you and I to attend to life in a responsible way. Uh, we also said worry is, is not right planning that acknowledges God. Uh, that is to say, so long as we're trusting God, it's good and it's right. Good and right to plan for the future and to be prudent about the future. In fact, we're going to, at the beginning of next week, we're going to talk about the balance that we must strike between prudence, risk, and providence. Okay, because people that worry tend to not want to take risks, right? They tend to want to have everything in, in, under and in, in their control, right? So they're, they're less likely to take a risk. Um, they get a little crazy about their planning because they're trying to mitigate every possible threat, right? So they want that control. They want that. Um, uh, they they want, want to be God in, in some ways in that situation. And so they get all those three things uh, out of balance. We're going to talk about the need for that because we need to be risk takers to, to, to a certain extent. We need to step out, plan for the future, and trust God. And so we can, we can, we can get that out of uh, out of proportion, and so we need to talk about how to keep that, uh, keep that in balance in our lives. So what is worry? We said worry is an inordinate concern regarding the future and things that keeps a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities. So it's, it, it distracts and prevents them from doing the most important thing in the moment. Okay, so whatever that thing is that God has given to you to do right now, uh, today, worry distracts us, it divides our attention and our thoughts to the extent that it keeps us from doing that thing, from being faithful in those current biblical responsibilities. And we said that worry is a sinful concern that is rooted in covetousness, worldliness, and unbelief. Covetousness because we lust for more than what God has given us, right? And so we get fixated on greedily getting more. So we get focused on that. Worldliness... Because the world is seeking anything but God, right? They want security, safety, happiness, fulfillment, freedom, shelter from disaster and turmoil, personal goodness and merits, anything but the Lord. And it's ultimately unbelief because when we worry, we deny the righteous, good, and faithful character of God. Or we said it this way, and we've said it this way several times, we deny that God is enough and that He has, he has and is and will do enough for us. So... We focus on the wrong things. That's what happens. And so then at the very end last week, I kind of threw this up here, um, that we just we ought to be 
right, biblically, faithfully concerned, and we ought to care about the things we can control, our present responsibilities, being personally faithful to the Lord, storing up treasures in heaven, seeking God's kingdom, loving Christ, serving others, repenting of our own sin, and having a pure heart. What we do in that distracted and divided way in our hearts and minds is we end up focusing on sinfully, being sinfully concerned about future uncertainties, what we can't control, producing results, earthly treasures, our personal kingdom, pursuing idols, treating others as a tool or obstacle, pointing out the sin of others and, or some sort of external form of godliness. Okay? Another way to illustrate this would be that we can fall into two ditches. On the one hand, we can be... Uh, she will sort of overly uh, concerned. We can be fretful and anxious, or sometimes I refer to it as a a sort of a mental spin cycle, right? Because the people that are anxious and worried, these things are just constantly churning, right? Just constantly going around in their minds, all of the what-if scenarios, a nervousness on the one hand, and then on the other side, there's the ditch of sort of having a nonchalant, who cares, whatever sort of attitude. Uh, No concern. uh, In other words, when, when they see Christians stumble, it doesn't bother them. <laughs> right, uh, they're they're not indignant when someone is causing another, another person to stumble or those kinds of things. They're they're not t- paying attention to the the needs in their families. Those those kind of things. So there's no concern. Nothing matters. It's sort of an indifference. What we need is this balance. We might call it an impassioned holy concern. Right, where we have a a, a holy and a biblical concern and care for the things that we should care about, but yet, and we'll see this in Philippians four taking everything to the Lord, right? So it's, it's that balance of caring about things, but then when you realize that you can only do what you can do, right? That you have to stop at that point and commit those things to the Lord. You have to, you have to make your request known to God. And so that's how Paul was both concerned and didn't worry. <laughs> he had concern for the church, but he also knew how to take his burdens to God. So he did both, and that's what kept him from falling into these, these two ditches. So how do we start to change? Uh, what are the critical components in the process of change when it comes to worry and anxiety? And you remember last week I mentioned that we need to apply much of what we said about handling fear. Uh, when we're talking about how to overcome fear, we had a list of, of, of several things. We had ten things that we talked about several weeks ago when it comes to fear. And what we did is just say, initially, we just need to take that list of 10 things and we just need to, and we broke that number five out, we need to take that same list and just substitute in for sinful fear, anxiety. So it's not like we do a completely different 10 things. We need to go back to that list and just substitute in the concept of worry and anxiety because principles of repentance and change, those things whether it's fear or whether it's anxiety or, or a number of other sins, those don't necessarily uh, completely change. We don't have a totally different list. Um, but because you worry and anxiety has some unique features, some of those things we talked about last, last Sunday, what we want to do is take that list of ten things and we want to add some things to it to, to, a, to sort of draw out the implications of what we talked about last, last Sunday. So in light of those unique characteristics of anxiety and worry, uh, we're going to add some things to that. So we're going to call this first one, hang on, 
we're going to call it uh, number 11. Okay, if you're wondering why we started with 11, it's just because we're going back to that. Okay, so if you want to go back again, if I'll send you the notes on this. Some of you asked for that. I assume most of you are, want me to finish the series and then send you the whole thing. So if you haven't received that back from me yet, just wait at the end of next Sunday. Then I'll have that complete PowerPoint if you want to, if you want to have the notes. Um, so sort of continuing with critical components in this process of change, uh, obviously one of the main passages we're gonna, we need to look at it, uh, at first, Philippians 4. So notice what Paul says here, chapter 4, verse 1. You remember Paul's writing from, from prison, so uh, he has obviously been able to, to, to deal with this issue of anxiety. Um, he professes himself in this very letter that he's learned to be content in whatever circumstances he's in. So he's a wonderful model for us. He's not just barking out, uh, some sort of um, just advice like, hey, yeah, uh, this, this would be a good thing to try. I mean, these are, these are principles that Paul himself would have practiced and been familiar with. So he could say to these people, do as I do, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. But he goes beyond that and gives them some real helpful counsel on how to deal with anxiety. So verse 1, uh, we don't want to hear this, right? I mean, if we're struggling with anxiety, I mean, this, this doesn't hit us the right way sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord always. Right, we're like, no, wait, 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 wait a minute. You don't understand the circumstances. And Paul says, yeah, rejoice. In fact, wait a minute, I knew you were going to say that, so again, I will say it, rejoice, right? So he emphasizes that it's as if he anticipates them saying, but Paul, you don't understand. And he's saying, I'm in prison. <laughs> I understand. I know, what, I know what you're dealing with, okay? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, okay, so here he's holding himself up and said, I'm an example, in me, if you've learned it, if you've received it, if you've heard it, if you've seen it, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you, okay? Now, a simple way to think about this, and, and it doesn't include everything that's here, but I'll often use this, this as just an outline for P's, which I'm not going to go through it this way, but I want you to have this. Presence, uh, prayer, uh, ponder, and practice. Okay, that's the gist of what Paul's saying. Okay, you need to understand God is near. You need to commit these things to the Lord in prayer. You need to ponder. You need to meditate, think about the right things. And he gives a list of those things here in in verse 8. And then practice, verse 9, right? You need to be or it, uh, you need to be practicing these things, the New American Standard says. And so there's something for you to understand about God. There is something for you to pray about. There is something for you to think about. And there's something for you to do when all is said and done. So you've got to make sure that the doing part comes, right? So it's not just a matter of praying about it. It's you, in every situation, there's something we ought to be doing to respond to that circumstance. So you've got to get all these things together. Now, let's, um, let's start with this. These are just some principles. Again, we're not going to cover everything here, but these are just some principles that I think come 
come to us just out of this particular passage. And the first one is this, that you must rejoice daily over what Christ has done for you. In other words, you must foster a habit of Christian joy and thankfulness. Okay? Again, this goes back to the indicatives. You remember that? Back to the indicatives that we discussed a few weeks ago, the indicatives of the gospel, uh, understanding what God has done for us and cultivating a gratitude for God's undeserved mercy and grace. Okay, so that's, that's part of this. It kind of ties into that initial list of ten things, but it comes to us very obviously directly in this passage in just that command to rejoice. The only way you're going to be able to rejoice, folks, in a difficult circumstance like that is to get a handle on God's mercy to you. I mean, that's, you're just not going to be able to get there unless you rehearse God's goodness to you in the gospel. So you've just got to go there, right? I mean, you may literally have to go back to those earlier chapters in the book of Ephesians or Colossians or even go back in this case to the earlier parts of Philippians. For instance, the first chapter, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says that God will do what? God started something, right? He started something and it's not only in you, but it's in the church, right? Because you could take Philippians 1 6. We tend to apply Philippians 1 6 in an individual sense, But Paul's writing to the church, right? And so even in a corporate sense, Paul is saying the Lord started something and he's not going to abandon the work, right? What the Lord has started, he is going to bring that to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, that's an indicative, right? I mean, there's no no command there. There's no imperative. It's just simply stating a, a fact that needs to be believed by us as Christians that God is not going to, in whether corporately or personally, He's not going to start this work of regeneration and then right in the middle of the process of sanctification and and, and godliness and growth in a person's life just all of a sudden walk away. He's not going to do that. So those are some of the things you may have to go back and just bring to mind and just say, I don't, this is difficult, Lord, but I'm rejoicing in the fact that even though this is going on, I know you're not going to leave me. You're not going to abandon me in this thing. You're not going to walk away in this. You're going to complete the work. Along with that, and also tying back into what we said about the fear of the Lord, we could add this. Number 12, you must think rightly about God. You must think rightly about God. Why? Well, because as Paul Wolf writes, he says this in his book. Uh, he was a, a Presbyterian minister. He went through a, bat, uh, a battle with cancer and wrote a book about that. But he says this at the end, towards the end of his book. He says, sometimes we have imagined God to be something other than what he has actually revealed himself to be. We have turned him into a different God altogether. In effect, we have invented a new God in our minds that has taken the place of the biblical God. The alternative God that we have constructed is a God who is not in ultimate control, who is sometimes cruel, and who is sometimes foolish. He just says that is our tendency. Our tendency is to to sort of um, uh, violate that command, right, not to have other gods before the, the, the one true God or, or to not sort of make an image of that God. It's like in a sense we're, we're, we are, we're, we're kind of fashioning a God that is more palatable. We're fashioning a God that is more like what we want him to be. And, and then he goes on and talks about how it's interesting how whatever version we end up with tends to be more like us, right? I mean, that's kind of what ends up happening because aren't we... Right? We're not in ultimate control. We are sometimes cruel and often foolish. Right? And so it's interesting. We're always bringing God down 
from that place of exaltation. We're always diminishing in our minds his character and his worth. Uh, but that's not, not the God of the Scriptures, right? The God of the, the Bible is sovereign, wise, and good. Um, as Jerry Bridges said in his book, Trusting God, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best for us. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. Period. I mean, that's the thing. We have to keep in balance the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, and the power of God. And in those times when we're anxious, one of those three things we're calling into question. Right? God's not good, he doesn't understand, or he can't do it. So we need to bring our hearts and minds back to these things. Go back to the scriptures. Think rightly about God. And as verse 5 reminds us, the Lord is near. Right? The Lord is near. A reality that allows us to rejoice and to be gracious and to learn contentment which is what we are commanded to do, right? To let our, he says there, to let our gentle spirit be made known to all men. It's just an exhortation for us to be, to be content and to, and to show graciousness. But the only way we're going to do that is if we understand the Lord is near or the Lord is present. God is near to hear the cry of the believer's heart and to strengthen them in whatever circumstance is tempting them to be fearful or to worry or to waver. Okay, the presence of God. It's a huge thing. I mean, the number of times the Bible reminds us that we've been brought into the presence of God, that God is near, He's with us, He's not abandoned us, He won't forsake us. Just the sheer repetition of that is mind-blowing. So we must have a big problem with this. We must have a big problem remembering the fact that the Lord is near. Uh, in fact, some people have argued that this is the the dominant main theme of Scripture. And I'm not convinced of that. I think it's a theme of Scripture. But nevertheless, some people say you can go back to Genesis 1 and you have Adam and Eve in the walking with God. And then Genesis 3, they sin and they hide from the presence of God, right? And then there, chapter 4, they are sent out of the garden, right? So it's an issue of presence. In fact, we'll go to... Um, as I mentioned, Pastor Kohler will come to this this morning. Uh, we, we ended, we were in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, last Sunday, but listen to this verse. He's going to deal with this, I think, this morning. Verse 9 says, he's talking about the ungodly, those who don't obey the gospel. Uh, he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's, what's, that's, that's the condemnation of the wicked, right? They're going to be... They're going to be put away from the presence of the Lord and, the glory, and from the glory of His power, right? You get to Revelation chapter 22. What does it say in Revelation chapter 22? It tells us that at the end, right, verse 4, they will see His face in the presence of God. So some have traced this, this as, a, as a major theme in Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Um, Pastor Shane will have to deal with a bit the difficulty of that how do you understand to be put away from the presence of God because we know that God is omnipresent, right? So if everything is in the presence of God, that would imply that even what takes place in hell and in the lake of fire is in some ways in the presence of God, and yet they're cast away from his presence. So how can you have both? Well, that's, that's part of the dilemma of the passage, right? I mean, I think it works if you think through it. Um, but this is a big issue in Scripture, the nearness of God. We need to constantly come back to that. In fact, Mike Pence, how many of you are aware of what happened yesterday with the, the shooting at the synagogue yesterday, 11 fatalities in that up in Pittsburgh? Uh, Mike Pence, they 
you know, he, he made, a, a, it was earlier before they got a lot of the information, but he's, he made some sort of a statement <clears throat> and reminded the, the listeners of Psalm 34. I was like, he's listening. Who's, he's getting our church-wide emails. <laughs> we, y'all realize that we got Mike Pence on the email distribution list because we're, we're memorizing Psalm 34, and he's quoting Psalm 34. I thought it was interesting that he picked that because he had, to some extent, a Jewish audience that would fully accept Psalm 34, right? And then he had a, a, a large evangelical right, group that would be fine with that, right? We love Psalm 34. That's wonderful. Now, he probably offended some, I can think of a few groups, <laughs> by bringing up Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Well, what does that talk? What's the, what's the whole promise of that verse? The Lord is near. He's near to the broken heart. It's, it's, it's a word for approaching. The ver, and the verb form means to approach somebody. It's saying the Lord approaches those or has approached those who are brokenhearted. What a promise, right, as a believer. You're struggling with anxiety? The Lord has approached you, right? He, he hears, right? He saves the crushed in spirit. So we need to think rightly about God because a low view of God feeds a high view of man. And both lead to a myriad of problems. One being a lack of stable footing for the Christian, which means more fretting and more sin. Right? You don't understand. You don't have a high view of God. It, it, there's, there's, it, it, it's, it's no mystery why you have anxiety if you have a low view of God. Right? Uh, and when, you'd have a, when you bring God down, again, what you're doing, it's like God takes on more and more qualities about you. So, right? so it's, it's sort of like you're, you're, you, he's being brought down, you're being elevated. right? Like you're going to bring these two things together, but then what ends up happening is it, it doesn't stay like that. right? God just keeps going down, and in your mind, you keep going up. Right Now you're the one in control and all this kind of stuff. So, of course, you're going to be fretting and be anxious when you attempt to have control over situations, and yet the sheer reality of daily life keeps screaming at you that you're not in control, right? So you're telling yourself that's the case, and yet everything about your life says you're not, right? And God keeps reminding you of that. Why does he keep reminding you of that? Because he wants you to go lower. <laughs> he wants you to be brought down, and he wants, to be, he wants to be exalted, right, for who he is. All right, let's move on. Number 13, you must change the way that you pray. It's not okay to just pray generally about situations and needs. We need to pray specifically. Uh, Here in this passage, this word supplication, the word for petition, uh, prayer and supplication, the first of those two terms is really a more broad term. But the second of those two terms, this word translated as supplication, uh, has to do with with urgent, specific pleas. Okay, so a a plea to God that has a sense of urgency and and specificity, all right? So we don't need to just pray generally about things. The more we're tempted to be anxious about things, the more specifically we should pray about those matters, okay? We also need to pray expecting our gracious God to answer, all right? Now, that's not always the way in which we had hoped. Uh, Sometimes his answer is a yes, sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's a not yet. But we need to pray, and we need to be devoted to prayer, and we need to be fervent in prayer, praying as if we actually trust God, right? Because we can get into the habit of just praying and, it, and not really entrusting the situation to the Lord. And so we need to be careful not to turn prayer into some form of sanctified worry. Hello, 
All right, I mean, can we do this? We can take the best of things in life, can't we? We can, we can take the best of blessings and turn them into problems, right? So what people will do is they pray and 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 they pray like a hundred times a day. They're not praying, folks. They're worrying. If they're, if they're praying a hundred times a day, they're worrying. They're not praying. So I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about the same thing more than once. I would assume you'll pray about it more than once if you're struggling with anxiety. But you can turn prayer into a sanctified form of worry and anxiety. <clears throat> Which means sometimes you need to understand that sometimes I have to tell people this that they need to limit the amount of times they pray about that situation. <laughs> and it's kind of like, whoa, you know, like I thought we were supposed to pray at all times. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what you're doing. You're not entrusting yourself to the Lord. Your prayer is just this sort of, again, it's, it's, it's prayer, but it's on spin cycle, right? You can't get this thing off your mind. And sometimes you need to have the discipline to say, I have committed that to the Lord this morning, and I'm not going to pray about that until tonight. I'm not going to pray every 10 minutes about it because doing that is not helping a situation. In fact, it's keeping it on your mind, right? And so there's a, there's a, there's a balance here in that. Uh, I know people could run with that and say, Joel, Joel, said, Joel said we don't have to pray. <laughs> we don't have to pray a lot. We don't have to pray more than once about something. I didn't say that. I'm saying if you pray 100 times a day about something, that's, that's, I would question whether or not you understand prayer. Because what happens in prayer is, in fact, we'll talk about this next week, this casting, right? First Peter chapter 5, casting your anxieties onto the Lord. Right, so you just keep cast, 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 cast. It's just like at some point you have to look back and go, "Did you do it the first time?" I mean, if you keep having to do that, so I'm just saying, be careful about that. Most people don't pray specifically, urgently enough about their cares and concerns because they are taking on their plate more than they need to. But then there are other people that get into that cycle of constantly thinking about it, praying about it. But that, in and of itself, can be problematic. If you're, if you're not truly entrusting your cares to the Lord. All right, number 14, you must control your imagination, which means that you refuse to invent or dwell on specul- speculative worst-case scenarios. You need to park your mind on the right things. Okay, so think about this sort of ongoing spin cycle. Just constant. Think about you, your mind is in overdrive. Okay, and what you need to do is you need to put it into park. Okay, and you need to park your mind on the right things, or, or, or I would say you need to be meditating on the right things. So this takes us back to the issue of meditation and the memorization of Scripture. All right, you and I need to study and meditate on passages that deal with this issue of anxiety. Right, so memorizing a verse of Scripture about purity is not going to be the most effective way to deal with anxiety, okay? Generally, memorizing Scripture and thinking on those things that are true in the Word of God, so just generally sound doctrine and truth will have a sanctifying effect on your life, okay? But if you are specifically dealing with a sin in your life of impurity or anxiety or greed or whatever you need to know the passages in the Bible that speak to that directly and study them out and, if you can, memorize them. 
right? So that's why I've been saying this stuff. If you are struggling with fear and anxiety and you haven't availed yourself of Psalm 34, you're missing a huge opportunity. I mean, we've been right in the middle of that as a church. And it's like, I mean, it mentions fear like four times. I mean, one about the Lord delivering us from our, out of our fears, all our fears, it says. And then going on to talk about the fear that's needed in our life, the fear of the Lord. Right? So it's like this, that, you need to know those passages. So Matthew chapter 6, we've mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. John 14, 1 Peter 5, we'll look at next time. This one in Philippians. Uh, some of the Psalms, Psalm 27, Psalm 34, 46, 56, 61, 73, 94. I mean, there's just numerous Psalms that speak about the goodness of God, the nearness of God, the faithfulness of God to get us thinking rightly about this. And again, as far as Scripture memory is concerned... Folks, if I had a dollar, <laughs> I would be a millionaire if I had a dollar for every time a person in counseling said, I just can't memorize scripture. I can't do it. I had a pastor's wife this week. I was counseling a pastor and his wife. She was, the first week I gave them two verses to memorize. The next week I gave them three verses to memorize. So when they came back, I wanted them to give me the most current, the most recent, the three verses, right? It was out of Colossians. And... She was a nervous wreck in the, in, the, in the lobby of the church. She could hardly sit still. And it was because she knew it was coming. She knew it was coming. She knew she was going to sit down. I was going to say, okay, now, um, quote those three verses, word for word. I want them, you know. And so she was just absolutely panicking out there. And then I really had to just toy with them a little bit. When they got, when they got done, I was like, okay, now, I, this is accumulative. So I want you to go back. <laughs> And I want you to give me those first two verses from the previous week. And I mean, I, I thought they were both going to break into tears, right? <laughs> Folks, this is a pastor and a pastor's wife. And, and they're saying, we struggle to memorize Scripture. Okay, let me just give you some advice. As far as Scripture memory is concerned, if you can worry, you can memorize and meditate on God's Word, period. There are no excuses for a worrier to not memorize Scripture, Warriors have mastered the art of turning things over in their minds. Right? They have. I'm just telling you. Warriors constantly... I'm just saying, take that spin cycle thing, right? If you're going to do, do that, use it to your advantage, right? Um, turn these things over in your mind. I, I told her, I said, there is... I mean, these days especially... I mean, Chris Aiken is the one who introduced me to Scripture Typer... It's this little app, you know, you pump, put in your verses and then it leaves, it leaves certain words out and then it makes you type in those words that, and then it changes it up and changes different words out so you have all these blanks, right? And you'd be surprised after going through that 50 times how fast you can pick up on not just one or two verses but sometimes whole sections of Scripture. I use a voice recorder. It's free, folks. Forget the Calm app. You know, that's, well, I'm not going to say anything about it. You can, if you're doing the Calm app, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings with that. Yeah, there might be some usefulness to that. Um, but there is an app that's just a voice recorder. Some of, them are, some of your phones already come with it, right? But I had to download one. Psalm 34, I take the translation that I'm using, which has kind of messed me up because I know the church is doing ESV, but I do New American Standard. So that's why it's, it's I, I hesitate to, to quote it <laughs> because I know what you'd say. You'd say, he missed, boy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He is winging it. He, is, he, he, he wouldn't believe all the words that he got wrong. All right, it's New American Standard. But what I do is I, I read the whole entire psalm. It took two and a half minutes on my voice, voice recorder. Psalm 34, verse 1, read it. Verse 2, read it. Verse 3, read it. Verse 4, read it. Okay, two and a half minutes. You go to the gym. You put that on loop for 30 minutes, 
which means you're going to listen to it 15 times. Your own voice, which to me helps because you, you enunciate things and you, you speak in a certain rhythm, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're reading. You hear your own voice reading that psalm 15 times and you do that seven days a week. And I'm telling you, you'd be shocked at how much of those 22 verses you would put to memory. Yes? That's a problem. <laughs> That's a problem. If, you're, if your own voice annoys you, then just send it. I'll just send you mine. I told somebody, I told this pastor's wife, I was like, listen, I mean, if, if James Earl Jones, if that, if that floats your boat, that's fine. He has a version two, right? And I don't think he does NIV because that's what the version two is using. But I'm like, if, I know he does KJV because I remember those cassette tapes, right? You can probably get those now digitally. But is that who it is, James Earl Jones? The real deep. Yeah, he's one of them. And who's the other guy? Heston, uh, Charlton Heston. Yeah, there's the other one. So, yeah, if you, there are options, Matt for guys like you that might be annoyed at your own voice. Uh, so, yeah, do what? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stop worrying about it, Matt. My goodness. Such a, simp- <laughs> such, a, such a simple thing, and Matt's back there worrying about it. All right. Okay, so I'm just saying, don't, I had to tell this pastor's wife, I'm like, I said, so next week, all right, when you come in, I mean, there, I don't want a single word. You don't miss a single word. And I just gave her some practical tools. Here's, I'm telling you, if you struggle with this, there's just some very th- easy things you can do. But if you are struggling with anxiety and fear and worry, do not tell me you cannot do this. Okay? I had another person say this, that they can remember. I mean, they, songs, every word to a song back in the early 80s. Okay? I mean, there are ways. Okay? There are ways to get this into our minds and hearts. But you have to discipline your mind to dwell on what? What does it say? Philippians 4. Verse 8, whatever's true. That means whatever's true about God, whatever's true about you, whatever's true about your circumstances. Truth, period. It needs to be truth. Whatever is honorable, that, that means whatever causes us to... The idea is lifting up your eyes or to, be, to, be, um, to think about whatever is majestic and awe-inspiring, namely God's majestic reign. It's like, think about... Because think about what happens when you get worried, you're worried and you're anxious, you start to think on earthly things, Right? You start to think about everything going on right here, and it's, it's Paul saying, you need to think about things that will lift your eyes, right? That will get your focus off of the details of life and get them focused on majestic things. He goes on, whatever is right, or you might even translate that as righteous, that which is righteous, God's commands and his moral standards. Whatever is pure, again, the purity and holiness of Christ, those things that will challenge your hypocrisy and duplicity and lead you to nurture a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Whatever is lovely, right? That which is, the word is, it's, it's the idea of pleasant. Um, there's, in fact, every translation just about has a different wor- word for this. But it's, it's the idea of something that is pleasant, something that is glorious, something that is good, something that is beautiful. Um, then you have whatever is of good repute, which simply means things that are worth our admiration, Things that are worth our admiration. If there, he says, is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, actively yield your mind and thoughts to these things. Dwell on them. Park your mind there, right? You've got to, to think about this list and how this list applies to your situation. And you have, to, you have to consciously yield your thoughts and your mind to those kinds of things. Okay? All right, number 15. You must divide your concerns into different categories. 
and there are three of them. There are those things that you can do something about right now. There are those things that you can do something about later, and there are those things that you can't do anything about at all. Okay? If it's something that you can do, if it's something you, you can do something right now about, then you, you work on that, right? With a God-dependent attitude, but you work on that. For example, if you have an exam next week, start studying for it now rather than worrying about it. Right? So there's some things. You're worried about that exam. Well, there's some things you can be doing right now. Right? If it's something that you can only do something about later, then plan for later, thankfully entrusting your plan to God when you are tempted to ruminate and to brood. For example, if you have a big meeting, meeting next week, you cannot attend the meeting until next week. Right? You're worried about this meeting but there's, you've already prepared, right? I mean, you've done what you need to do, right? There are some things that you might have been able to do in the present to prepare for that. But if you're prepared, then you, it's, you have to simply do that and trust rather than fret and worry, okay? So you have those things you can do. Some, you can do something about them right now. There are certain things that are coming, and you can sit there and worry and fret about those things, but there's really nothing you can do to, to accelerate that. It's only going to come when it comes, and if it's something that is completely out of your control, then you must turn it over to God with thankful, trusting prayer. So when you have any potential symptoms of anxiety or fear, you learn to identify those things. And, and, and there's ways of identifying in your own life when you are becoming anxious. I mean, they can, some of them are physiological, right? Increased heart rate, shortness of breath, tension in, in, in the stomach area, those kinds of things. You, you identify those things, those potential symptoms of anxiety, and then by the grace of Christ, you choose to respond to them with calm, self-controlled thinking. And understand that in many cases, people who struggle with panic attacks have become afraid of feeling afraid. So if you've ever experienced that, what you have sometimes is people have experienced that high level of anxiety, and they have had the consequences of that play out physiologically. So when they start to feel the physiological effects of anxiety, they start to get anxious about the physiological effects of anxiety, (laughs) which is the spin, right? It's like, here it goes, okay? So people become anxious about feeling anxious and dread the physical sensations of worry and fear so they panic when they start to feel them. And this, folks, is really where the battle becomes, I think, the most intense. Right? It's when, it's when they are, are, are beginning to have anxious thoughts and they're beginning to feel the consequences of that and they recognize that and they begin to get anxious about going through that again, which is why I think... So many people, Christians and, not, not, and unbelievers alike, but just people that are on uh, medications for anxiety and things, it's one of the things I think, and it's, I'm not trying to make a statement about the, 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 what, the good or the bad of that. What I'm saying is that I think a lot of, in a lot of situations, the reason why people do not, if they want to, to back off of that or come off that, one of the reasons that they struggle is because when they start to do that, they do end up having those physiological Effects And sometimes those things are even more pronounced. And then when they have that, they get anxious, right? And so it kind of it drives them back to, 
to that as a solution because they just have a hard time getting it. Because it's an unknown, right? I mean, they don't know what that's going to feel like ultimately or how long it's going to last. I mean, they could, they could start to think about the right things and meditate on the right things, but I'm just saying that's, that's, that is where it's a hand-to-hand combat <laughs> type of battle and warfare, and, and sometimes it's the unknown of how long that's going to persist and last and what that's going to entail. That, in a sense, drives them back to that, what for them is, is, a, is a safer zone, right? So again, I'm not saying it's bad or good. I'm just saying I think that is why some people try to back off their medications or come off their medications and they end up n- not kind of going all the way with it is because of the fear and the anxiety of actually what they're experiencing in that, that very intense uh, battle. So you have to, you have to fight... You've got to talk. You've got to talk good th- theology to yourself. Again, I'm not talking about just a sort of self-talk. I'm talking about a s- self-talk and a focus upon God's solutions. I mean, there's a, that's why I say we got lots of things, not just one thing, not five things. We got ten. We're building on ten. We'll end up with twenty. So it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. I'm just saying there's lots of areas to address. Some are not a problem. Some are, but it's. This is not going to be easy, especially if you've had a pattern, sort of a rut and a groove that's been carved out because of years of responding to pressure in your life and things in that way. Psalm 3, O Lord, how mar- how, how, listen to what he says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying to, of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I'm just saying those are the kind of passages you've got to just, you've got to, you've got to say that to yourself. You've got to think that. You've got to meditate on that. You've got to study that. You've got to memorize that. You need that accessible to you in the fight, right? You need Psalm 34 accessible to you in the fight. You need Philippians 4 accessible to you in the fight. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But you've got to talk right theology to your own soul. Um, and then do what you can to resolve a worrisome situation. Because divine sovereignty doesn't negate legitimate human responsibility. Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but there are, again, you're a participant in your sanctification, right? This is not let go and let God. Again, if I had a dollar for the the people that I meet that believe that just because they prayed about something that God's going to take it away, right? I pray about my anxiety, but I'm still anxious, right? Well, you know what? I mean, I hate to, I hate to, to, De- you know, devastate you. Hopefully it won't, but you may struggle with anxiety the rest of your life. I didn't say that you had to be overcome with it. What I'm saying is you may, you may have a disposition such that this is just something that is a part of your sanctification for a very, very long time. You're going to have to fight this. You're going to have to fight it often, and you're not going to be able to just take a vacation when it comes to anxiety and, and worry and fear. You're going to have to be alert and vigilant constantly about those things. But for others, it's other things, right? So some people may not struggle with that to the extent that you do, but they got other things, right? We all have those things, right? Besetting sins, things that easily entangle us and weigh us down, we all have them, right? But if this is the particular thing that you struggle with, you've got to engage in that process of Christian living and growth Realize it's the Spirit of God that's enabling you, right? He's at work in you both to will and to work, okay? The Spirit is at work, but He's at work through your work, right? Right, so you gotta, you got to recognize it's a battle and get fully engaged in this, okay? 
All right, number 16, you must focus your attention and energy on fulfilling today's responsibilities. Half of the thing people, half of the things people worry about will never actually be on their plate, probably more. The question you need to ask, again, as you've worked your way through these principles, is what are your God-given responsibilities? What are your God-given responsibilities? You have to know what those things are, and then you have to get busy doing those things. Don't use anxiety and worry as an excuse to not be faithful, right? And I'm just going to tell you, you're going to have to, oh, you're going to have to commit to being faithful and obedient even when your emotions are going completely in the opposite direction. I mean, you're going to be wrestling with anxiety, but you're going to have to determine that the next right thing, that, act, that, 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 that decision of obedience, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. There is, it's not going to come easy to do that. But your emotions are sometimes going to be going one way, and you're going to have to make a deliberate choice to follow Christ, right, and to deny yourself. So... We'll come back to four more, but let me just, and again, these are, this will hopefully help to summarize what we've said just in Philippians, okay? We, there is an inner circle of, there are two circles. We have an inner circle of responsibility, right? This represents things that God has called me to become or do. They are my responsibility. I must faithfully serve in these ways and in these roles, okay? Uh, these are the things that I can focus on there. Uh, these, are, these are the things I'm responsible for. My thoughts, my words, my actions, my responses to people and outcome of situations, my efforts, my weaknesses, my sin and its consequences. Right? Those are things that I, can, I must come to grips with. Okay? But we also have an outer circle of concern. This represents things that are of concern to me but are beyond my reach. They are God's or another person's responsibility and I must trust God with these concerns. Okay, so these arrows, okay, these two going out, these arrows represent worry or anxiety when I try to expand the inner circle and do God's or others' job or when I am overly responsible, which always results in irresponsibility. If you become overly responsible, you will end up irresponsible, okay, because you're doing things, you're taking upon yourself things that were not meant for you to take on yourself, so what happens is this inner circle of responsibility, you're pushing it out. You're, you're making it bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Instead of leaving those things alone that are in the Lord's hands, right? And they're, they're not your responsibility. This one arrow down here that's headed the other direction represents unfaithfulness when I try to minimize the inner circle as, as I expect God and others to do my job for me. So what happens here is that people, that inner circle of responsibility, they want to shrink that plate. (laughs) They want to say, well, it's not my responsibility to do this, this, and this. And you're like, well, that's funny because, you know, Colossians says that you're to be doing this. And Ephesians says you're to be doing this. And so their problem is that they're irresponsible in the sense that they are not coming to terms with what those God-given responsibilities are and being faithful in those areas. Now, again, this this looks good on paper, right? Don't you wish it was a neat circle like that? (laughs) But again, just to illustrate the point, there are things that we need to be responsible for, but then there is a place where we say, you know what, I'm concerned about my kids' salvation. I'm concerned about my kids' relationship with the Lord, right? Every parent does. Every Christian parent's concerned about that, I would assume. But you can't make that happen. You can be faithful, right? So you look at your, your responsibilities as a parent. You can do that, but you certainly can extend that circle of responsibility 
and take upon yourself something that you were not meant to bear and carry. So what do you do once you've done everything the Lord's called you to do faithfully and then you feel that push to be anxious about certain things? You entrust those things to the Lord, right? You go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm concerned about the salvation of my children. And you, and you, cry, you cry out to the Lord and you, and you, and you, and you, you speak with candor and, and honesty to the Lord about this, what the Psalms, that's what the psalmists do, right? But that doesn't mean that you increase the circle of responsibility, Right? You stop, you recognize where that ends, and you entrust that to the Lord. So when it comes to the inner circle of responsibility, we faithfully obey. When it comes to the outer circle of concern, we entrust those things to God. Okay, so again, that's, that's all nice and clean. <laughs> I know that responsibilities shift constantly, right, from even some, one situation in life to another. I mean, you go from work to home. Everything changes, right? You go from school back to the house. I mean, roles and responsibilities are constantly moving back and forth, but you do need to have some semblance of clarity about what those responsibilities are so that you know whether or not you are minimizing your responsibility, which is creating a guilty conscience. Think about it. If you're irresponsible and you're not faithfully obedient, then you're living with a guilty conscience, which is going to create anxiety. Okay? If you try to expand that circle of responsibility, then you take what should be cares and concerns, but now those things become anxious thoughts because you're assuming too much, you're taking on too much, and you're not truly going to the Lord with gratitude, rejoicing, recognizing the nearness of God, and entrusting those things to God's character and promises. Okay, Again, this just is a visual way of... of, uh, kind of summarizing where we, where we are to this point. We'll come back. There's four more that we need to talk about. And I'm just going to tell you the last four are great. So <laughs> they're all good, but I, especially the last one or, one or two. The, hey, I'll just say, I'm going to save the best for last, okay? Number 20, you don't want to miss number 20, okay? Because this, this thing on number 20 will sever, I mean, at the root, it's going to chop down and sever that root to anxiety in your life if you can really grasp it. It's so significant in the New Testament, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll demonstrate that when we get there. Okay, folks, thank you for your time.